0: Morning. Thank you, Alex. You sure you don't want to stay up here? I'd much rather listen to you than me this morning. <laughs> Yay! Man, I was gonna say it's good to be back, but I don't know. <laughs> it's only been uh, God. It's only been two weeks since uh, I've been able to share with you in God's Word, but it seems a lot longer than that. And um, while our time away was needed and appreciated, thank you so much. It is great to be back, notwithstanding Chris Sage. Does he work here? You know, can I fire him? You know, I have to look, I have to look this up. <laughs> I'm very excited for what God has in store for us in the year 2010 so let's um let's get after it and begin again this morning, shall we? Amen. Would you please stand if you're able? Let's dedicate our time together before God by reciting Shema as interpreted by Jesus. We just sang it. If you're wondering how Jesus himself summarized all of scripture and thereby summarized what it means bottom line to be a follower of God, you see it on the screen before you. We will do the Hebrew responsively and then together in English. Please say these words after me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Veyahafta et Adonai Eloheka, Behol Levavka, Uvahol Nafsheha. Uvahol Meodeka Uvehafter Reacha Komocha Amen Together please hear O Israel the Lord is our God the Lord alone Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself and all God's people said Amen, Amen. please be seated We finished 2009, praise God, yes, I don't know of anyone I know who thought it was a great year, so we finished it, but we finished it here on a high note by looking at the role of the church, if you remember, and if you were with us, we've just recited it, the role of the church, bottom line, is to love God and love others. For the next three weeks, Craig alluded to it, beginning this morning, we're going to step back a bit from the role of the church and ask three more basic questions. Three questions underlying, if you will, the role of the church. We'll take one question a week, more or less, for the next three weeks. The questions, in short, are the what, why, and how of church. What is church? Why do we even bother to do church? And how do we do church, especially and specifically here at this expression of her at West Bowles Community Church? And for your additional calendaring purposes, please consider, won't you, setting aside the Sunday school hour at 9 a.m. on Sunday the 31st, well, for a new sort of membership class. I'll give you more information on that class in the coming weeks, but it'll be a special time where even present members, and of course those interested in membership for the first time, will be invited to participate. Ooh, sounds interesting, doesn't it? So be sure and stay tuned for that on the 31st at 9 o'clock. And next week, you'll be sure to want to come because we've got something to give you. That's right. We've given you all sorts of stuff lately, right? Takeaways, we call them, from the sermon, from the message. Anywhere from rocks to mood rings, what more could you possibly want? (laughs) Boyd was telling me yesterday that his wife's mood ring is working great. It's green when she's happy, and when she's angry, it turns his forehead red where she hits him. So, (laughs) So come next week... And get something really, really cool. Maybe not as cool as that, but I know what it is, but you don't. (laughs) So you'll have to come and get it, please. All right. What is church? I mean, besides a rather curious, clumsy little word that seems at least one vowel short. It's a simple question in that it's very basic and it's only three words long. What is church? And yet, how we answer that question has a very significant impact. For starters, the answers many people would give to that question, what is church, are probably, in many instances, much different today than in times throughout history. And one reason that's so is because what words mean to people often changes over time. Have you noticed? What a word means today is quite often different from what it meant yesterday. I brought a few examples. Take, for example, the word awful. Did you know it originally meant full of awe? That is, full of something wonderful, delightful, amazing. A little different in today's ears, yes? Or how about the word brave? Did you know its original use was to signify cowardice or being a coward? The old meaning, the original meaning of brave still lingers around that word bravado. It doesn't really mean brave, at least in its its original meaning. Or, how about the word artificial? Artificial originally meant full of artistic skill. Or the word, the little word tell, T E L L, originally meant to count, which, by the way, is how we came by the term bank teller. Fascinating, I know. You never know what you learn in church, do you? I have more, but I won't give any to you. The point of all this, (laughs) the point of all this, is that any serious study of the word church or really any word that appears in the Bible, should make clear today's meaning as well as the meaning in the Bible. Especially in the case of the word church in the New Testament, where it first appeared in its Greek form, ecclesia. And while the meaning of church today hasn't drifted as much, perhaps, as the examples I just gave, the drift in meaning since New Testament times is not insignificant. To get at some of today's understandings of the meanings of this word church, we went once again to our dear friends, the man and woman on the street in Denver. And this is what we found. Let's watch. All right, So it's just word association. I say a word, you say what comes to mind. So I say church, you say? Religious. I go. Uh, Steeple. 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 People. So I say church, you say? Church. Bible? (laughs) Jesus. Christian. Christian. Religion. Religion. Goer. God. Catholic. Jesus Christ. Bible? Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, not awful, but I wonder if we can do a little better, although a few responses were very good, and in the ballpark, one author who did a little more in-depth research found that when many people use the word church, they have in mind a building or place. It has special features, like a run of a few people in a row on the video mentioned, a steeple, You know, things like stained glass or pillars and always, it seems, a mortgage. (laughs) A church today is a building or place we can point to. As we do a bank or a theater, we can point to it and we can say, there is a church. Other people today use the word church to designate Well, an organization that includes a number of congregations and their buildings, and they're somehow all joined together in some program of cooperation and ministry. The church, in this sense, is a denomination. Still others, again like one person at least in the video, they use church to mean Christianity. These people usually are socially or culturally aware because they are often talking about the influence, the Christian influence or ideals in society when they say or they hear the word church. And then there are a host of other possibilities, including people today using the word church to describe fellowship or doctrine, defining church's family or intellect. Some even think of the first century church when they say church, as if somehow the first century church was the only true church and that Somehow, every church since that time is a a poorer copy of those original churches. So these are a few common understandings of what church means to many people today. But here's the thing, the rub, as it were. The Bible never uses the word church for a building, a denomination, Or influence. The Bible, the word church in the Bible, ecclesia, is never synonymous with fellowship or doctrine or to any model or ideal of the first century. Instead, the Bible uses the word church to mean the people of God. The Bible's consuming interest is the people of God here on earth. Biblically, the church is a society of people, God's people, that all people are urged to join and to advance God's visible community on the planet. The heart of biblical history is the call and the care of this visible community, first in Israel and then in the Christian church. The 66 books of Scripture really form one book, the Bible. Because throughout the pages of the Bible, there is an actual, visual, earthly company called the people of God. What is church? According to the Bible, the church is the people of God. Now... There are two distinctive ways to look at the church. We can see it as part of God's plan running throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. This is the view from biblical history. And another way to see the church is as a result of Christ's saving work on the cross and in the believer's heart. This is the view from personal salvation. In my opinion, both are correct. They rely and they relate to one another. The biblical history view, even before the cross, sees God's promise to Abraham in Genesis and his setting aside the people of Israel as setting aside a people of God. We even refer to Israel as God's chosen people. Peter uses this same phrase people of God, when he says, after the cross, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Is Peter, in using this particular phrase, suggesting some relationship between the New Testament church and Israel of Old Testament times? Well, if you've ever read Romans chapters 9 through 11, the apostle Paul also wrestles with this relationship, the people of God of Old and New Testaments and how they relate to one another. Paul finds this relationship extremely intimate, telling us that we Gentiles have been grafted into Israel's status as people of God. Is the church the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel? And or is the church a second and alternative people of God? Is God's only design to bring individual Jews into the church today as the fulfillment of promises made to ancient Israel? Or does God retain a future purpose for corporate Israel? Important questions that deserve our dedicated study someday. I suppose we'll get around to Romans eventually. But I'll give you a summary of Paul's conclusion of these questions. Paul affirms that both Israel and the New Testament church are a part of the people of God. And then just as it appears that Paul is about to tell us exactly how that works in detail... Paul basically drops back and punts. Just when you think he's going to give the definitive answer, Paul starts singing a doxology about how amazing is God's wisdom that he has this all figured out. Thanks, Paul. Paul affirms that it all works somehow between or among Israel and the church, but never really tells us how in detail that would satisfy many. But however it works out, for this morning's purposes at least, it is enough to say that the concept, the people of God, when applied to the church, can only be understood in the light of God's dealings with Old Testament Israel, and especially his aims in the first appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. When that angel told Joseph that the Holy Spirit was responsible for Mary's pregnancy, He commanded Joseph to name the baby Jesus, the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua. Same name, did you know? Meaning the salvation of God. The name had special significance, the angel explained, because Jesus would save his people from their sins. Joseph and Mary at least certainly heard Israel. And so the name Jesus itself provided a link between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New. That baby in Bethlehem was both the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel and the foundation of God's plan for the church going forward. The Christmas narrative in the Gospels include both ideas. Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, when filled with the Spirit. Prophesized of the unborn Jesus. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. The old priest seemed to be speaking of Israel. But then, just a bit later, another elder of Israel, Simeon, saw in the baby salvation prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, both Jew and Gentile. All of this to say that while clearly the birth of Jesus marks a significant turning point in the unfolding drama of the people of God in Scripture, it's nevertheless one huge, sweeping, unfolding drama, the same story of the people of God ever since Adam and Eve and certainly since Abram. Not two stories, not a chopped up series of vignettes where God constantly changes His mind, not two peoples or more peoples of God, but one unified people of God. And so we can learn a lot about the church today by studying the basic ideas surrounding this concept of the people of God from start to finish in the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. And when we do that, study the entire biblical concept of the church as the people of God, we find the following three markers of the people of God, regardless of when we're talking historically. These three things are true of God's people for any age or any time. True both before and after the cross. So what is this people of God? What of this people of God? Three things. First, the people of God are a called people. Second, the people of God are a covenant people. And third, the people of God are a chosen people. And isn't it awesome? They all start with the letter C. Must be true. (laughs) Well. We'll look at the first one in the time we have left this morning, and we'll continue with the next two next week after we give you your gift. You haven't forgotten about that, right? Okay, good. First, the church or people of God are a called people. The people of God, the church, owes its existence and distinctiveness to one fundamental fact, the call of God. That call came first to Abraham. God told him, leave your country, go to another country where I will make of you another people. You know, we often read through that call as if it's no big deal. But that's huge. Can you imagine if God came to you as an American or even as an individual family member within your extended family and said, you know what, I want you to leave the United States. I want you to leave your family. Where do you want me to go? Well, I'll show you. Don't worry about that yet. I just want you to leave and go. And when you do that, I will make out of you, individually, a whole new people. It's amazing that God went and picked out one person. Can you imagine if he came and did that with you and promised that he would make out of you a whole new nation, would bless you, make your name great, and that out of you and your new nation would come a blessing to all of the world. It's precisely what he did with Abraham. And Abraham's new tribe would be God's means of blessing to all the rest of the people on the earth. God confirmed this covenant of grace with Abraham several times. And then later it was confirmed to Abraham's heirs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God's promise continued toward fulfillment under Moses, a descendant of Jacob. And after Moses led his called people to Sinai, God said to them, You have seen how I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice... There's the call. And keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be my people, said the Lord, if you obey my voice. Israel then was both created and sustained by the voice of God that called them into the wilderness. God wanted his people to know that their uniqueness among all other peoples on earth rested on their hearing and doing, obeying his word. They did not first choose to follow God. Hey guys, let's follow that God. God first chose to call them out of grace, sheer grace. As for their obedience to the law, just like our obedience to the Bible, God's voice, His call, just like Israel's obedience to the law, His voice and call given at Sinai was never a means of securing God's favor. favor. That's why it's always been about grace. God's covenant of grace. There is not even a hint that God loved His people because they were good. Not a hint. In fact, there's story upon story upon story of God continuing to love His people despite them being bad. Israel's obedience, like ours, was and is simply the way of life appropriate for a delivered and loved people. Obedience is a way of life appropriate for the people of God. Later, God empowered His people to conquer Canaan and established a monarchy, which unfortunately ended in disaster as God's people broke God's covenant, rejected His law, His voice, despised His prophets, His messengers until there was no remedy. And so God's judgment fell on them through Assyria and later Babylon. And yet... God did not abandon his people. Yes, they were still his people, given God's grace despite their wickedness. God did not abandon them, but rather he restored them once again to their land. And there they stayed until the day Jesus was born. And God kept his promise to Abraham that through him and from him all nations of the earth would be blessed. By a baby. God is very cool that way. For it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we see God's plan and purpose is to call out of the world a people to Himself to redeem them from sin and to give them His promised salvation. It always was His purpose and it's still His purpose today. This call is the heart of the New Testament understanding of the church. As I mentioned before, the Greek New Testament word from from which we get the English word church is ecclesia. And that word is built on the Greek verb kaleo, which, go figure, guess what it means? To call. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. The preposition ek means out, Ecclesia is to call. So church literally means to call out. The people of God are called out by God to Himself as a separate and distinct people. The church is therefore far more than a collection of people who get together and decide on their own, you know what, we're going to choose to come together to do church. The church is a people who have been called together by the word of God. God preceded this assembly of people. This body of people then gathers together not to share their thoughts and opinions, but to continue to listen to and to act on the very voice of God, which still calls out in the wilderness of life today. The New Testament insists strongly on this fact. God has called us into the fellowship of His Son in 1 Corinthians. In Romans 1, God has called us, in fact, to belong to Jesus Christ. This divine call is a holy calling in 2 Timothy, or a calling in holiness in 1 Thessalonians, which means we are separated from the world. That's what holy means, set aside, or separate, or unique. And it makes us in character and conduct God's call does, it makes us saints in 1 Corinthians. All for the purpose of not leaving the world so the world can go on its way to hell, but quite the opposite, to be God's means now that we've been called out separate and distinct together for saving that world as we live and witness and serve and love people in the world while not being of it. Because we're a separate and distinct people of God, a people of God. Three practical lessons emerge from this special calling of the people of God. First, if the church is called by God, it must assemble. God's word is an invitation to the guilty and the lonely and the desperate and the hurting and the hungry. To leave the world and to find not only forgiveness and salvation, but also to find community in Him through His people. He calls us from our isolation to be joined to a people assembled for praise and care and mission. This is the primary reason for corporate worship. Now I'm leaking into next week's sermon. That's okay, I can if I want to. Let me give you a preview at least of this much. The primary reason to come together as a joined people assembled for praise and care and mission is because God calls us to join with each other. We'll peek more in depth next next week as to why God would have such a silly idea. But I'll tell you why He doesn't do it He doesn't call us to join together. We do not attend church to be entertained. We go to church to give visible and audible expression to what we are. Members of a unique body distinct from the world, the people of God. Okay, that's enough. I have to leave something for next week. Second, If the church is called by the Word of God, then the Bible must have a central place in the gatherings of His people. We hear the stories of the people of God in Scripture, we learn about what we most need, Jesus, and we discover God's way of holiness, being a unique people of God. Last, the call of God should destroy our spiritual complacency. What do I mean by that? A person of God, the people of God, never fully achieve. They never arrive. The church is always a pilgrim people on the way. Paul's attitude is our model here. Not that I have already obtained or have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. God always calls his people to greater Christ-likeness and selfless service to others because the prize of the high calling of God is nothing less than Jesus Christ and his selfless service to others. Jesus loved God and loved others like no other. And it's by God's call, so help us God, that we must too. There's more, but we'll save the more for next week when we talk about why it is that God would call us to assemble and do church together. We'll answer that perplexing question we sometimes wrestle with Sunday mornings. Why should I get up and go to church? But we'll pause here and let it sink in for a week. My friends, that we are the church. We are the people of God. And it's a people extending back in history to when God began calling His people to Himself. We are the people of God, and God is still calling us to assemble. He's still calling us to hear and do His Word, and He's still calling us to respond in love. To love God and love others. And yes, it's a high calling. The highest. And yes, it's a tough call. In my opinion, the absolute toughest. Given in particular the self-sacrifice that's involved. But you know what? The call of our God to become a people of God, it's also the best call. God's call for the people of God to assemble, to hear and do His Word, to love God and love others is our pers- purpose-driven best life yet, best life possible. And if you're willing, if we're willing, it's a call that we can hear and fulfill here in our small way, so help us God at West Bowles Community Church. And we can fulfill His call as God intended, together as the church, and as the people of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you first called out from all the people of creation a people of God that we learn and know and read of in your book, The Bible as Israel. And through Jesus, your Son, you tell us through Paul that we've been grafted in to that same special people of God. Father, in the weeks that follow, help us please to understand and to live out fully what it means to be a people of God. Not that we can run away and hide and be elitist and a member of some sort of special country club. But, Father, the good that can come when you are here among us, as you promise, dwelling this body by the power of the Holy Spirit, your very presence, and what we can do, how we can be used by you to reach the world and to expand, ever expand, who belong to and who are indeed the people of God. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand please for God's benediction, His good words. I thought perhaps especially this morning the priestly blessing from Numbers, which Paul also quotes in the New Testament, would be appropriate. Hear these good words from God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord cause His face to turn toward you and give you his peace, his shalom. And all God's people said, amen.